Morida and indeed Lathabrean. And more importantly, my apologies to all the Welsh and Scots listening for my pronunciation this week. But well done for not voting for worst, most politically corrupt party in British history, which is my short way of saying nothing's changed here in the UK over the last few weeks. We're still governed by total incompetence and therefore it is still very dangerous to go anywhere, looking for spooks just yet. Slightly less dangerous for myself as I've now finally had both my vaccination injections. Do not forget that if you've had both injections, you can still catch it. But more importantly, you are more dangerous than ever before as you can spread it without knowing that you're spreading it a lot easier than you did beforehand. So as always, England doing worse than anywhere else in the nation and other parts a lot safer to be a paranormal tourist. But sadly, due to alphabetical restrictions, we are mostly in England yet again this week. We're also very near the end of the bees and we'll be getting onto the seas very soon. As we said... It is England mostly this week, and we start in Burnley, Lancashire. There are some excellent ghost stories about Burnley, but so many of no use to us in the show as they happen indoors, and we still cannot get into these spots just yet. Although shops have opened up. Well, the ones that managed to survive the economic disaster and soon tourist spots and various pubs, theatres, etc. are following suit. We'll talk about them where we can, though. I, I suggest you avoid them. Um, for many months to come, as the UK is still suffering from massive infections and has an unacceptably high death rate still. Let's start with a venue that you might be able to get to in the future, possibly even this year if you're lucky, the library. There's a tale about a piano in a lecture theatre within the building that's been known to play popular music hall tunes. Whether this piano still exists, I've no idea, but worth trying to track it down. The pubs are now opening up, so let's head to the Swan Inn. And there are reports here about strange and bizarre unaccountable noises of an unearthly nature. And when inquiring more, I notice that this seems to be a ghost that is in the toilet. The tale claims that cleaners have witnessed a man walking into the toilets and never coming out again. I do not know whether the strange noises then happen or this is somehow related in some way. Of course, we cannot go anywhere in this country without tales of phantom hounds and devil dogs. Well, there's no exception to the rule this time, as the hellhound has a name or two to be precise. There is Trash and a Striker. Two names, but one dog by the looks of it. It's said to be a large dog with saucer-shaped eyes, shaggy hair and big broad feet. And weirdly, it makes a splashing noise as it roams around. If you follow the creature, you will see it never blinks and eventually disappears. The reports that I've managed to track down name a few places that it's been seen more than others. One such place was Godly Lane. This may cause some problems as apparently this is now Omerud Road in the vicinity of the parish church of St Peter's. If you fancy a walk then head out to the woods around Townley Hall. That's T-O-W-N-E-L-E-Y. As it's been sighted around here a few times. The hall itself dates back to the 14th century and was the ancestral home of the Townley family. One of these family members, by the name of Lady O'Hagan, has decided not to leave the premises. And if you're in the woods looking for trash or striker, then you may run into her or even get run down by her. Lady O'Hagan has been seen driving her horse and trap around the woodland at night, and the ghost is supposed to make a sound that of horses' hooves on cobbled roads, even though there's no cobbled roads in the area. 
There are reports of another horse and carriage spook with a female driver that is seen leaving Huffling Hall and heading towards Townley Hall. And this may well be the same Lady O'Hagan ghost. And with this one, it's said that you're more likely to hear horses uh, when it's quiet than actually see anything. A female form has also been seen floating and wandering around and has at times been attributed to the same Lady O'Hagan. I managed to track down a witness statement from 1988 when three young friends were wandering through the area. Now they said, It was October the 28th, 1988, a Friday, about 9.30 at night. I was only 13 at the time and I was with two friends from Ivy Bank School. We'd heard about the ghosts, but we were just messing around. We didn't seriously expect to see anything. We entered the grounds from the entrance close to Turf Moor and walked along the path that leads to the hall itself. As we were walking, I noticed that across the river that runs parallel with the path, there was a figure behind the trees. At first I thought it was someone walking a dog and didn't mention it. A few minutes later we reached the children's park, the one where the swings and slides and so on are all made of logs. We were sitting there, and in the distance from the opposite side of the river, I saw something gliding towards us. It was white and human-shaped, but I couldn't see a womanly appearance. I could give you a long history about a female couple who lived in this district. The couple were referring to went by the names of Charlotte and Lydia. They were successful businesswomen, uh, running a, a calico printing establishment on linen and silk. Their firm, however was the pair of them actually hand-painting their designs rather than using wooden print blocks. This meant that they actually were more successful than the people who could do this cheaper as they did not bother trying to compete, but instead went for a rather well-to-do customer, including royalty. Now, the whole affair becomes intriguing, and we'll eventually get to our ghost story, uh, for Lydia had previously had a relationship with another woman, a former school friend called Everdine Dubois, she was now a tableau vivant a performer, and we seem to be massively digressing, as usual in this show, as I now feel the need to explain what these are. Tableau vivant uh, was the most controversial and legally grey areas that you could inhabit as a performer. They were inevitably attractive young women who would stand naked or scantily dressed in emotionless poses depicting classical scenes, often mimicking famous paintings. One often performed scene was Britannica, seen as a large-breasted woman stood with a shield. The point of these scenes were so that they had to remain still, as, as this was considered art, and was a legal loophole for artists to be able to paint their models. As soon as they moved, it was pornographic and immoral, but to induce some form of movement, people could move around them. For example, there would be fan dancers or attendants wafting a breeze and uncovering the naked performers, revealing them slowly during the duration of the show. Everdine Dubois was a star of Tableau Vivant, and she was of the Britannica enormously busty variety, with a slim, young-looking, even girlish body. The audiences tended to be male, but not entirely. This was not, after all, some tawdry strip show. This was, to all intents and purposes, art. This meant that often the shows would have local dignitaries in the crowd, such as local councillors, police officers, and members of the watch committee. I'm sure they were there for no other reason than to make sure that standards and decorum were upheld with no improper behaviour. As with all the rock and roll shows, it was the backstage pass that a lot of the men were after, wanting to get to the backstage party where the performers could this time actually move. These parties were by invitation only and often included female fans of the performers. This party was apparently the downfall of the couple. 
Not that they had been in attendance. Not like the local mayor, who used his influence to head backstage to congratulate the performers. And it was here that he saw a scantily clad Madame Dubois frolicking on some cushions with two entirely naked young ladies. Homosexuality amongst women during this period was not illegal, as apparently either Queen Victoria did not believe it to be an actual real thing, or more likely that the male politicians creating the law were too embarrassed to present this law to the Queen. And as the crime of male homosexuality, as defined by sodomy, was condemned in the Bible, they could outright ban it using biblical legal terms. Therefore, the crimes that she was apparently charged with included kidnapping, as one of the young women was unmarried and freshly out of finishing school and somehow had been taken by Everdeen. She in turn decided to avoid prison by naming names, including Lydia. The business could not take the scandal, and within months they were penniless. In less than a year, they had gone from successful businesswomen to homelessly heading to the poorhouse. Thankfully, they were taken in by a relative in Haslingdon, and they changed their names and started up business again. Sadly for them, their work was so good, it was instantly recognisable, and the whole cycle of homophobia started again. Their relative was a clergyman, and they'd been living in the vicarage, so obviously the local homophobes got their way, and they had to move on again. Once more in Burnley, they tried again, and the same thing happened, and they were forced to leave and headed off for Rossendale. The legend is that they were huddled together for warmth whilst trapped in a storm on the high moor at Crown Point, and it was here that their rather cold, frosty bodies were found. Charlotte was found without her shoes, so either they'd become that poor they had no shoes, or, as been theorised, someone stole the shoes from the dead body before they were discovered, which is not as unusual as it sounds, as many people would do this, especially on battlefields. It might sound distasteful and unthinkable nowadays, but these were different times over a hundred years ago. Crown Point has seen its fair share of courting couples ever since, and now we are not about to get into another tale about phantom dogs or indeed dogging, but these witnesses were in a car in 1973 doing a thing that my daughter would call a kissy-facing, when they were disturbed by a knock on the car door. The witness, Noel Stevens, gave a description of what happened next. We thought it might be the police, so we hurried to make ourselves decent. When we opened the door, there were two women standing there. Nicole Fletcher, the other witness, carried on. They were wearing Victorian dress. It was a kind of double-take. We thought they must be on their way to a fancy dress party and that their car had broken down. Noel, being the gentleman he was, said that I wanted to help, but by the time I'd found my coat and got out there, there was nothing there. But they were there, two elegantly dressed women who were very cold. One of them had bare feet. They claimed to have gone to the police, but that they were not interested. However, it is said that they sent a car and to look around, but they found nothing. There were many tales of sightings of these two, and local tales claim that they uh, are more often seen on the roadside close to a small muddy pond, and that they're easily recognisable by their attire, and one of them being shoeless. Speaking of unhappy female forms seen in the area, some of you will be screaming, What about the Pendle Witches of Burnley? Well, I know that often in geographical studies of the paranormal, Burnley is equated to the site of the Pendle Witches, but I'm afraid you'll have to wait until we get to P for Pendle Hill before we talk about that one. You can, however, watch the most haunted episode if you're desperate for witchy, spooky action. So we must leave Burnley, and yet again, I hope for a Scottish, Welsh, Cornish or Irish spook to get us out of the plague pit, and after this week's election results, moronic shores of England, instead we obviously end up staying put. Though we're edging closer to Scotland as we head north to Burnopfield, Durham.
We could content ourselves with the fact that the Scottish border has moved several times and the Scots even claimed as far south as York, so in theory we could say this was once Scotland. The first reports of this spook I found go back to 1932 and it's a railway ghost. There was a railway line running through the village and on that line there was an accident. In 1879 a plate layer had died after being hit by a coal wagon. Before that next question comes out of your mouth or forms in your head, let me answer it. A plate layer, or track man, is a railway employee whose job is to inspect and maintain the permanent way of a railway installation. The term plate layer derives from the plates used to build plateways, an early form of railway. The spook manifested as a floating face and was reported often by people on the line. It's described as having a twisted face with white hair and before it appears a clanging noise is heard. The reason I say this in the present tense is that on the internet there are claims that the ghost is still seen, though I cannot track the exact whereabouts of the sightings. Looking at my list, from now to the end of this book, it seems we're staying in the Lurgy Kingdom of England. Thankfully, though, it is the end of the B section. Yay! And I know we have some great places in Wales and Scotland to look forward to in the seas, and currently trying to research any Irish sea places, though not being too successful on that front, so feel free to get in touch with stories for us. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at, at Paratourists, or just email them to us at, at paranormaltourists at hotmail.com. So sadly, we're going to stay in England and head to the beautiful part of the country, that being Burton Dasset in Warwickshire. So that's B-U-R-T-O-N-D-A-S-S-E-T-T. I'm constantly sent messages about places that are fantastic to investigate and various castles, pubs, museums that we should talk about. But remember, at the moment, this is all about free places to visit. I'm determined to make sure that we can get rid of all the profiteers from ghost hunting. In fact, we've announced that we're returning to ghost hunting next year and we'll be running four nights at St. Breville's Castle in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. It's the most haunted place in the world and you can stay with us and go ghost hunting for as little as £25 a night with bed and breakfast. A lot of ghost hunting groups will charge triple that amount or more and it's becoming an expensive hobby for people for no reason and... That is the reason for these books. We're looking at free places that are easy to investigate, and this is perfect as it's seen in summer on warm evenings in the woods. So many nights I've spent ghost hunting consist of sitting in damp, cold rooms, caves and castles in the middle of freezing cold winters. So this one seems like a little nice one to make a night of. The Burton Dasset General Area has reports of Jenny Burntail. Be careful, though, as these are strange burning lights and they're said to tempt you into the woodlands for some nefarious reasons that I can't seem to find on the internet. The Jenny Burntail seems to refer to things also called corpse lights, or will-o'-the-wisp, or fairy lights, and sometimes refer to the corpse roads where bodies were transported from Viking times onwards. In late medieval times, a population increase and expansion of church building took place in Great Britain inevitably encroaching on the territories of existing mother churches. Oh no, I feel a massive sidetrack coming on. I will attempt to stop myself. I referred to mother churches, and this is the derivation of Mother's Day. Most people think Mother's Day is all about your mother. In reality, it's called Mothering Sunday, and it's a day when you're supposed to return to the mother church of your birth. It could be thought of as a day like Thanksgiving in America, where families travel halfway across the country to get back to their home and family. This is why in other countries there is an actual Mother's Day as well as Mothering Sunday. 
Lots of areas started demanding some form of political and organisational distancing from the church. And ministers panicking about this, as it might mean a decrease in tithes and income, so they instituted corpse roads, connecting outlying locations and their mother churches. Uh, that, would, that would be the only place that you could have the burial rites. Now, this is also the reason you cannot bury your loved ones in your garden or private land without permission. This meant that for some parishioners, corpses had to be transported long distances, sometimes through difficult terrain. It's not as if they could call up an undertaker and get the corpse picked up in a hearse and driven away. So usually a corpse had to be carried, unless the departed had been a wealthy person. These roads would be traversed even at night due to the fact that there were not exactly great corpse freezing facilities in medieval times. So they would have to use burning torches as a form of illumination. These are said to still be seen as a ghost form, and given us a description of Jenny Burntails and Will-o'-the-Wisps and... Oh, sidetrack over. Oh, there we go. Now, what were we talking about? Oh, yes, lights. Lights are seen in the area, especially round Woodland on a summer's evening. If you're reading the book version and not listening to the show version, then this is slightly awkward, as I'm supposed to keep to 120 pages and we've not got to bury St Edmunds yet, so let's cram some stories in quickly as we go to... Burton-on-Trent in Staffordshire. That's B-U-R-T-O-N. Yes, sadly, we're staying back south. We constantly are just within the reaches of Scotland and then we turn back around again. But it's a free one that should be relatively easy to find and still be Covid-safe, as we're after the Branston Bridge. A good way to report this spook is by using the 2011 sighting that seems to correspond in nature to the majority of times it's been seen. It was on the 19th of July in 2011 when a driver crossing the bridge reported that they had seen a white figure pass over the middle of the bridge. The figure was somewhat translucent as the headlights of the vehicle seemed to pass through the figure. On reaching the far side of the bridge, it simply vanished. Another vanishing figure which has been seen recently was in the marketplace. There have been sightings of a female form which vanishes and a recent story I found claims that two teenage boys caught the eye of an attractive young woman, who glanced back and smiled as she walked across the marketplace and then promptly vanished from view only a few metres from them. These two female disappearing forms are not the only ones to vanish, as a young female form has been seen, and then inexplicably not seen, on Stapen Hill Road. One report is from the 9th of January in 2016, as two witnesses walked past a rather pale-looking young woman who was dressed in black, a typical goth teenager strolling through the town. She seemed to look distressed, and she passed, so they turned around to see if she was all right or needed help. But she was nowhere to be seen, and had vanished, even though there was nowhere for the figure to have gone. The last vanishing figure I could find for the area seems to have already vanished, as it was actually just the sound of footsteps following you, this time on Station Street near the former Bass site, now Cause. The witnesses claim that the sound is like someone walking in high heels behind you, and when you turn around to see who's there, then the footsteps just stop. Whilst in Burton-on-Trent, have a listen for ghostly bells. The one witness report I found of this tale places it in the vicinity of King Edward Place, heading towards the corner of Rangemore Street. Now, the reason that I'm going to use these witnesses is because of their campanological experience or bell-ringing knowledge for the layman amongst us. 
On April the 12th in 2012, at 11 o'clock at night, these two campanologists were walking through town and heard an unfamiliar ringing coming from the direction of the Aldi supermarket. These bell ringers were experts in their field, knowing the sound and peal of every local peal, and this struck them as unusual, as it seemed uh, they'd not heard this one before. This is a great example of ghosts or of paranormal happenings that would be ignored by the average person. The same happens on so many ghost hunts where people ignore a noise, light or movement, assuming it to be a real person or event. And until you realise that everyone and everything is accounted for, you just assume it's a real world or not paranormal. And for this I refer you back a few episodes to the Michaela Strachan dog story, and if you're reading this, uh, not listening, then you're getting frustrated and will now have to go on Spotify to listen to the show to know what I'm talking about. Let's now get from these massive sidetracks and back to the point. These peals were unusual and sounded different to the nearby town hall clock and the nearby church of St. Modwin. The supermarket had been built on top of the site of an old church, that being Holy Trinity, and this church had previously had a very heavy church bell that would probably have given a similar sound to the one that they were hearing. Which leads me to wonder how many times this ghostly clairaudient sound has happened without anyone realising what they were hearing. Now, we hurry to the end of the book, or this episode, and indeed the letter B, as we finally get to bury St Edmunds in Suffolk. Bury in itself has quite a spooky name as it refers to a body being buried, that of St Edmund. Yes, that is how the town got its name. Or is it? Oh no, I feel another sidetrack appearing. If you ask locals, or even non-locals, then that is probably the legend you'll get in reference to the naming of the town. However, the name Bury, or Bury, is etymologically connected with Burra which stems from other Germanic languages, such as the German Berg, meaning fortress castle, the Old Norse Borg, meaning wall castle, and the Gothic word Balgs, or Borgs, meaning city. Ah, they all in turn come from the Proto-Germanic Bergs, which meant fortress. This in turn derives from the Proto-Indo-European root Berg, meaning fortified elevation, uh, which in is, in also has influences from the Welsh Berra, meaning stack, as well as the Sanskrit Berant, high or elevated building. So, up to you. Who do you want to argue with? And where in the world would you like that argument to happen? The second section of the name refers to Edmund, king of the East Angles, called Edmund the Martyr, who was killed by the Vikings in the year 869. He became venerated as a saint and a martyr, and his shrine made Bury St. Edmunds an important place of pilgrimage. The formal name of the diocese is St. Edmundsbury, and the town is colloquially known as Bury. More importantly, it has an excellent ghost walk. It does not run all year round, but from an historical point of view, it will give you some truly fascinating information, and I cannot do justice in this book, or show, to the amount of spooks in the town. This is the reason I'm going to again reiterate that this book is about free places to visit that are haunted. There are a lot of haunted buildings, pubs, museums, restaurants and so on, so we're only going to concentrate on the freebies in this short section of the book. If Covid has abated enough for you to get into the Abbey and Cathedral, then we may well start there. There are ruined parts of the Abbey that have seen many manifestations and lights floating around, including, unsurprisingly, spectral monks. They have also been spotted in the shops along Abbeygate Street. So if you're out late one night looking for Abbey ruined ghosts, then on your route there, take a peek into all the shops. One witness claims to have seen a cardinal 
while she and her husband were here wandering around the area. She claims the spook somehow interacted with them or looked like it was communicating with them before it vanished, though I cannot seem to find what the Cardinal was trying to say. People trying to discredit these claims point to a playful policeman who says that he invented these stories back in the 1960s, but the stories seem to predate this as well, right up until today. I will tell us a tale of a calendar ghost, because of course there has to be a calendar ghost, and I'm told by friends of mine that live in the area if you want to meet other ghost hunters then February the 24th at 11 o'clock at night is a good time, especially in St Mary's Churchyard. It's here you might bump into several ghost hunters, all trying to catch sight of Maud Carew. Ghost is said to appear once a year, as she is a cursed spirit doomed to walk the earth for all eternity. She was cursed by a monk after Maud murdered the Duke of Gloucester in 1447, and now she wanders round aimlessly trying to avoid ghost hunters in February. There is a grey lady that spotted around the town, floating about aimlessly, spooking people out, but also possibly doing her shopping. This figure has been seen in the ruins of the former St Saviour's Hospital, which is now incorporated into Tesco, floating in and around the buildings in the area. In Tesco, it's claimed by staff that it might be responsible for the poltergeist activity in their canteen, which has been witnessed on many occasions. As we previously mentioned, there is an excellent ghost tour and also a fantastic book about the ghosts in the area, so I'll not give away too many tales, but it's well worth a visit, and ghost walks are a great way of being relatively safe from Covid and still getting some fantastic information and fun. Let us finish our little outing into Bury at the railway arch near Musto Street, Eastgate Street and Great Barton Road, so it's now the site of the A14 bridge. This is more of a legend, but is supposedly a reoccurring spook that's been seen many times over the years, with 1970 being the earliest known sightings that I can actually find any reports on. This tale dates back to the Crimean War in the 1850s, and it's claimed that a wounded soldier was based at the nearby hospital, and whilst recuperating, he ended up having a bit of a thing for one of the nurses. This was not an unusual occurrence, and many nurses will tell you this happens a lot, though in this case the feelings were reciprocated and the two fell in love, and they made plans to elope. Obviously, for some reason, the father of the nurse decided it was up to him to decide who the poor young woman should be marrying, and decided to put a stop to these romantic shenanigans, and in the process managed to kill the soldier. Well, that is one definite way of putting a dampener on wedding proceedings. This nurse and soldier seem to have managed to meet up in the afterlife as they are both spotted in the area. Well, that's the end of Oh no, I've just seen the notes for this book and there are more. Has England decided that every town name must begin with B? Oh well, only a few more to go, and where exactly are we going? Busby Stoop, Yorkshire. Yes, that's a real name and a real place, although technically we're not actually going there, but just outside of there, as we need to travel along the Thirsk to Ripon Road. But I'm not sure of the exact location. We are sure of a name, however, as we're looking for Thomas. After murdering his father-in-law in 1703, he was hanged and placed in a gibbet, which, according to reports, appears every so often. Keep travelling along the road all the way to... Bushy, Hertfordshire, that's B-U-S-H-E-Y. If you're travelling by bicycle, then you may get mistaken for a spook, as there is one riding around on their bike in the King George Recreational Ground. 
Reports seem to claim that it's been spotted cycling uphill and seen several times on frosty mornings, so perhaps wait until the winter before trying to spot this one. It seems if you recreate as close as possible the atmospheric conditions of a sighting, then you stand a better chance of seeing them. Stay on your bike as I desperately try and cram some more tales into the end of this book and show as we are cycling to Butley Wooten. Right, that's B-U-T-L-E-I-G-H-W-O-O-T-O-N, and that's in Somerset. We need to find Cedar Avenue in Butley. Yes, these are real place names, now stop asking. This is possibly one of the best ghosts to spot, as it's a pair of walking trousers. There's apparently nobody in them, just the trousers walking as if operated by Wallace and Gromit. Reports claim that this ghost has been seen just walking along in the middle of the road. From what I can see, these reports do not mention the weather, so it may have been a particularly windy wash day with clothes flying off the line, but I think that would have been mentioned. And now to finish the letter B, this book and this week's show, we talk about a spook that we've spoken of about well in previous episodes, so we won't go into too much detail as we head to Buxted in Sussex. Now it's B-U-X-T-E-D. Specifically, we're going to Nantuck's Lane and Hadlow Down. And if we're in Nantuck Lane, then obviously we're searching for the ghost of Nantuck, the well-known witch. According to the legends, Nan is supposed to have murdered a man back in the 17th century. She was not a great murder, uh, well, should we say not great at getting away with it, as the body was quickly discovered and her involvement was decided on from the very start. Over the next few days, she evaded capture by hiding in hayricks and woodland as she was apparently trying to make it to the church to seek sanctuary. We get to the end of the book, and just before the finish line, I see a sidetrack, and I'm afraid we've got to take it to explain what sanctuary entailed. If you could reach a church, touch the altar and claim sanctuary, then you could escape punishment. She failed to get to the church, as officials seemed to understand that's what she was trying to do, and she escaped into the woodland instead. It's this very lane and woodland that she haunts to this day. Well, it's been a hectic ghost-crammed letter B, and three books later we finished it, with over 360 pages of places to visit and experiments to do, as well as the video episodes on our YouTube channel, and audio podcasts which you can get for free on Spotify and other podcast channels. Hopefully, you're signing up to Patreon, and if you are, that may be the reason you're reading this book, as it's available for free as one of the Patreon pledges as are all our books. You may also have pledged an amount that will get you a ticket to come and join us at St Breville's Castle, whilst we're ghost hunting for four days and nights and sleeping in the haunted bedrooms. And details of all of that can be found on our Facebook links as well as on Twitter and Patreon. Well, I'm now heading off to start collating all my research on the letter C, and you'll be glad to know that there are several Scottish, Welsh, Cornish and Irish places in that one and we'll be able to leave these lurgy-ridden lands of England, as well as hopefully having more places to visit if Covid allows by the end of 2021. The rocking tunes of Frankenstein's Lobster are now playing in the background, of course they are, which means all I can do now is say goodbye to the letter B, and to everybody out there, stay safe, stay sane, and keep spook spotting from everyone here at Paranormal Tourists. Goodbye! Goodbye, 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 goodbye! goodbye.